0: Hello, and welcome to End Credits here on CFRU, 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus, and Community Radio. I'm your host, Adam A. Donaldson. Joining me in a bit will be Tim Phillips. I forgot who was coming on the show uh, for a second there. I do apologize. Uh, Been a busy day here in the broadcast center on top of Snake Mountain. Um... (laughs) <laughs> it is November and uh, so the weather's getting cooler and fortunately movie theaters are still open so uh, or you could stay at home and watch like one of a myriad of of uh, cable channels or streaming sites you know wherever you get your movies. Um, there's a lot of, um, a lot of entertainment to be had. Welcome to November. End Credits is a local movie show for local movie fans. We are here every Wednesday at 3pm to talk the latest in pop culture and review the newest movies, which this week will be the new police drama thriller, The Guilty, which you can now stream on the Netflix. That will be in the back half of the show. Uh, For the first half, we will continue with our interviews with uh, Guelph Film Festival... Filmmakers. Uh, this week we've got Jennifer Abbott, who is the director of The Magnitude of All Things. And I don't say this lightly, it's maybe the most brutally honest uh, film, ab- uh, documentary, film, period, even uh, about climate change I think I've ever seen. And I've seen a lot of climate change documentaries in my time, and uh, it really pulls no punches. So I was really interested in talking to jennifer about um her experiences making this movie and uh i guess why she (laughs) made perhaps the most harrowing climate change documentary you have seen or will maybe likely ever see anyway i'm going to throw it to that interview starting right now so jennifer abbott thank you so much for joining me today
1: my pleasure great to be here
0: i just want to start out by saying this is maybe the most honest documentary about climate change I've ever seen. And I've, I, do, I don't know how many climate change documentaries I've seen, but I, it's obviously so many, I, I can't <laughs> remember them all. Um, I am curious because there's a whole portion of the film where you talk about, talk to a lot of the people you talk about uh, concerning like hopefulness and positivity and optimism. And that seems to be like always where, climate change documentaries want to land it's like yes things are bad but it's not too late can you describe your own struggle trying to I guess find hopefulness but not find like false hope as like some of the Mm -hmm. people you're talking to are trying to get at
1: sure yeah I think that's a great question and it's such an important area that is so often neglected because even you know as documentary filmmakers there's so much pressure to be hopeful and uh for me, what I really recognize is that hope itself can be a form of denial, right? And so if, we're, if we are optimistic, which is different than hopeful, that you know, everything is going to just magically turn out uh, with regards to the climate crisis, then we're not paying attention to peer-reviewed science, right? And so I think for me, the, what I really wanted to explore in the magnitude of all things is authentic, what, what does authentic hope look like in the era of climate catastrophe? And there's a very direct relationship for me between authentic hope and telling the truth, and really having the strength to look towards the catastrophe in our midst uh, honestly, as you point out. And, you know, if we do that, then most likely we'll feel grief we'll feel sadness, we'll feel despair, we might feel rage if we know politically what's going on. Mm. But from my point of view, it's really only when we do that, that we can take action in a clear way, sort of understanding really what it is we're up against. And, and you know, taking action is, is where I do find authentic hope. So right. hope is a verb. And hope is practice, but hope is also found in the indeterminacy of the climate crisis. You know, if the the IPCC report told us anything, it's that, you know, we can expect a range of temperature rise from likely 2.7, but I think an IPCC report says 1.5, all the way up to 4.5, right? And so this is not, this is a scalable problem. This is not a binary problem. It's not like nuclear war where you hit the button or you don't right? So one tenth of one degree is going to make a huge impact. And we don't ultimately have a crystal ball, we don't have a time machine. So there's this indeterminacy, and there's this extraordinary agency we all have as human beings today, perhaps more than any other time in human history. And so in all of those things, I find authentic hope. I find hope as denial when we just turn the other way, think it's going to be okay, think somebody else is going to solve the problem for us. Don't uh, really understand that we need to have major systemic um, changes, uh, that this is not going to be solved in these sort of small little um, tinkering uh, or incrementalism.
0: Right. And the, the movie does an interesting job in that it, it it really does deliver the the big ideas about climate change, but it also humanizes it as well. And like some of the so people know you know the the movie kind of takes off um your your sister's passing from cancer and how that kind of that kind of personal grief can uh translate into like bigger grief about like the effects of climate change and what i found interesting was how the comparison between the two is able to scale the bigger crisis because i mean we all almost all of us have had someone in our lives affected by cancer and Uh, It can be paralyzing. There can be a sense of hopelessness, but there can be also be a sense of hope. I mean, unfortunately, your sister passed away from cancer, but cancer is also survivable for many people.
1: Yes. Well, actually, not very many people know, and it was a thread in the film at one point, but we decided to cut it, is that my little sister actually was diagnosed with breast cancer while my other sister passed away. Wow. And uh, that... And that was exactly how we were approaching it. I was approaching it in the narrative: is is my little sister has survived, and you know the the narration I had was you know um, that 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 is also one possible outcome, right? But you know I don't even think you know my sister. We all die. That goes without saying. It's 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 a very um, huge conceptual leap as a human being to know intellectually that we all die and then say to get a terminal diagnosis and and have to confront that like the the limited duration of the rest of our days that's a very different conceptual place to be and i think that's really what i was trying to draw attention to is you know it's one thing to abstractly know that there's a climate crisis but it's another thing to to actually pull that information deep uh, to inside the deepest places of yourself and let it break your heart. Mm. Because if it doesn't, you're not really doing it. Like, how can you respond in any other way to the sixth mass extinction? How can you respond in any other way, knowing the human suffering that's already taking place, especially with the global south, especially with the poorer countries and people? who had, you know, hardly anything to do with creating this crisis. So, like, for me, it's about pulling that knowledge in. And, and, and then from that place, you know, we, we move forward. And similarly, I think when you do that um, as a person with regards to your own mortality, your life becomes richer. And that's mm-hmm. really the journey that happened with my sister. You know, she faced her deepest fears and sorrows about her own mortality. And then she became the best person, person she ever was prior to her dying right and that's what we all have to do we have to become the best people we ever have been to rise to this moment in time where things are going to get worse before they get better
0: right and what i think the case the movie makes is that you know there are more than two speeds to this um when we talk about climate change they're like either the the speed is either anger and rage or like despair and acceptance but I mean there's a whole wide range of emotion we're discounting when, when trying to tackle this and it almost seems like you're advocating for like a five stages approach um, to climate change in a way
1: <laughs> well you know that, that's yeah I'm I'm not because although a lot of people have made that observation and I'll tell you why and that's because I, I mean the whole five stages of grief is based on this Freudian idea of grief where you ultimately can move beyond it right Mm -hmm. and I think when you lose a when you lose somebody a beloved person in your life well that's sort of just part of being alive and and it makes sense that one could potentially heal from that but of course it's going to transform you regardless right but you can heal and you can move on from that Wherein I, I think that with the climate catastrophe, and um, you know, it's the same thing people have written about related to, say, for example, Holocaust survivors, mm-hmm. you know, you don't ever fully heal from that kind of trauma, that kind of like collective evil. And, and yet, and, and I don't think that we're going, you know, for me, my, my ecological grief, uh, I, don't, I, I think I'll always be living with it. Right, but but what I try to do and succeed sometimes more than others, you know, let it transform me in a way that you know enlarges the size of my heart and and sort of, you know, enables me to go forward as a person who who is putting out the fires as opposed to lighting more, you know. That might and I'm using that as an analogy, you know, in, in terms of our daily lives as we each go through our daily lives, you know. Um, just I think there's a way of, of uh, letting the grief make you a better person but not destroy you by uh, accepting the climate crisis but not surrendering to it
0: and you talk in the film about the, the film starts and kind of ends with the image of ash falling because of you know nearby forest fires it's, you know that interconnectivity not just in life but in of death too like the ash from the forest fires there's scenes of like dead coral in the film where it looks ashen. it looks like you know kind of the remains of pompeii which are basically like preserved fossilized ash it you know even in death were connected in in that way too like everything looks ashen
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely well um ash and death there's obviously there's that uh, i i would agree with that there's There's a uh, homogeneity when it comes to death.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Another thing that interested me in this, you talked to Greta Thunberg, and um, she talked about how she has Asperger's. And of course, uh, one of the things that's important for people with Asperger's is that sense of routine. And one of the things that drives her crazy is the great uncertainty of climate change, the utter lack of routine, which is another way of bringing this down to a human scale because she's someone who, I mean, a lot of people admire, but I mean, she also gets a lot of like negative attention as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think she, not that she didn't need to humanize herself, but she did humanize herself. And that's like, as a person with Asperger's, I need that routine. And what I'm losing is not the planet. I'm losing a sense of routine because I can't make conscious predictions about what my future will look like which I desperately need as someone with this condition.
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, I mean, I think the other really interesting thing about Greta's story, of course, is it segues back to what we were speaking about before, which yeah. is, you know, where do we find authentic hope? And she has you know, basically healed herself through her actions, right, and, and that's, the, that's she, you know, she was so foundationally depressed, you know, so deeply, deeply depressed, and then it was through action that she is now just risen from the ashes. If we want to segue back to another part of our conversation. Yeah. And
0: and and through that, I mean, no one told her to go stand in front of her parliament and with, with a sign, no one told her to go on strike from, from school, but.
1: To the contrary, it, people discouraged her.
0: Right. But I mean, it yeah. also, but you yeah. know, she did it anyway and it spoke to people and yeah. it said like, this makes sense. And you know, it, it seems to me that, you know, the environmental movement talks about collect a lot about collective action, but I mean, individual action, in terms of like making a decision for yourself, I'm going to act on this can also have interesting um, side effects. And, in, in you know, you can be a leader, even if you think you can't, even if it's just standing in front of parliament with a sign, then you become a leader of a whole movement.
1: Yes, absolutely. But I do think very important to point out that had millions of people not joined Greta, mm. you know, she would still be a singular person standing in front of the Swedish parliament without a voice, right? <laughs> right? And so, you know, I, I'm a really big proponent, if you've seen my other film, The New Corporation, um, mm-hmm. uh, the sequel to The Corporation, you know, what we're really trying to say there is just that in many ways we've been conned to think of ourselves as consumers, to think of ourselves right. as individual agents, when, when really our agency and our power um, is when we join with others and fight for system change. So, um, you know, Greta's only powerful because millions of people took notice. Mm-hmm. How has,
0: I mean, the, your, your kind of epitence for making this film was a deeply personal one, but through the process of making it, um, how were you changed?
1: Well, I was so busy when I was making it. I don't <laughs> know if I changed then, but I think I've changed lately. Um, yeah, you know, it, I think that it's quite interesting be, for me because my thinking has changed a little bit in the sense that um, I'm really cognizant that that space of gr- ecological grief, you know, despair or rage, is not separate or different from the space of um, taking action of, you know, fighting for and doing everything one can. And that, you know, often it is represented as a binary that, you know, you're either just so depressed and you can't get out of bed, or, you know, there's these activists on the front lines, and they just, uh, in order to function, they just squelch and push away all their feelings and never talk about their feelings. And, but, you know, I think, I think I've sort of come to understand the importance of, you know, being on the front lines, but having grief groups, having ways to collectively process and discuss and uh, work through difficult feelings, you know. And then on the other hand, it ha- you know, if you're in a state of grief, you know, having ways that you can, if having pathways to action. So for, for me, the two are very connected now in mm-hmm. a way that I think I hadn't quite understood before.
0: Maybe to wrap up, uh, I, I like to ask filmmakers like what they liked, what what they hope audiences leave their movie with. And again, this is kind of a personal story. It almost feels like you're kind of working through your own sense of grief, and, and we're just kind of sharing that. Um, is there something you want audiences in particular to leave with when when they finish The Magnitude of All Things? Uh,
1: well, you know that's a hard question because obviously it's an 85 minute film and I don't really want to summarize it you know, in, in a couple sentences. Sure. Uh, and you know, and I, I, I'm, I feel it's a fairly complex and nuanced film as well, I hope. But you know, I, I think for me, what I will say is this, is I have been surprised pleasantly by audience response to the film you know, many people do have some trepidation about watching it. You know, it's about cancer and climate change. It's not an easy film. Yeah. But, but countless people have said, oh, my God, that was such a relief. That was so cathartic. That was so healing. And I think the experience is, you know, there's so much energy to pushing away the truth of the climate crisis. Uh, obviously, people are on a spectrum as to where they are in terms of denial and acceptance. But... You know, I, I really guess I hope viewers walk away from the film, you know, feeling that sense of healing, that sense of catharsis, that sort of empowerment that for those who haven't already been able to face the, true, the, the scale and violence of the climate catastrophe, they, they sort of have started the journey towards doing so because that journey is, is absolutely key in, uh, in my view to create the kinds of um, Cultural consciousness and system changes that we need to to really make progress
0: well thank you for the catharsis and uh thank you so much (laughs) for uh your time today and uh i i I think there will be a lot of people in guelph who look forward to seeing your film so thank you so Uh, much
1: great well thank you so much for your interest
0: and once again that was jennifer abbott and uh her film the magnitude of all things is one of the Uh, films that are available in the first week lineup of the Guelph Film Festival. Uh, All the films are sort of separated into weeks, so there are certain weeks that certain films are available, and then all the films are available to watch from December 3rd to December 5th. Uh, So just be aware of that as you go to the Guelph Film Festival website. If you're looking for any of the particular movies we've already had on, or the movies from the filmmakers we've already had on, just be aware of that. Certain weeks are for certain films. So, uh for all that information go to GuelphFilmFestival.ca. In the meantime, we have another movie to talk about which is completely unrelated to climate change. It is The Guilty. Uh Tim will be on to talk about it next. You're listening to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. <laughs>
2: The color of the car, okay? When I say the right one, say it's fine. Red, blue, black,
1: white. It's fine. White? Yes. Is it it a car? No. Truck? Uh, Man.
2: No, just yes or no, just yes or no answers, Emily.
1: I'm sorry, I have to hang up. Emily. I have to hang up. Emily, don't hang up, okay? Put the
2: phone on the floor in your pocket anywhere that he can't see it all right just keep it on so we can track you and if you can't just call me back my name is joe i'll be waiting and when you hear me i will be waiting my name is
0: and that was a clip from the guilty it is the new film from anton fuqua and it stars jake gyllenhaal christina vidal ethan Hawke, riley Kauf, divine joy randolph paul dano and peter skarsgard I'm now being joined on the line by Tim Phillips. Tim, how
2: are you uh, this week? Doing well, Adam. Yeah, got out to the movie theater for the first time since February 2020. Mm-hmm. And uh, then came back home and watched a Netflix movie that we're uh, <laughs> reviewing this week.
0: Yes, you are a credit to the New World Order, I guess, because uh, you you can go both ways. Yeah. <laughs> sure <laughs> yes uh no i've been to the movie theater several times over the last couple of weeks to do stuff for end credits but uh also at least once for uh just uh the pleasure of uh going to the movie theater to see a james bond movie especially since i'd gone to the trouble of rewatching all the other james bond movies wow. uh Yeah, so that's a slog, Um, in in some cases, I should say. Uh, Not all James Bond movies are great, but some are great. Uh, The question before us today, though, is The Guilty Great. It is uh, a new film on the Netflix. It is based on a Danish film of the same name, which I did not know going in, but um, anyway, that may have factored into one of your rational reasons to uh, check out *The Guilty*, but uh, why don't you kick us off Tim, by talking about what uh, about this movie looked good to you? Yeah,
2: I don't know how how rational it might be a bit irrational <laughs> for my reasons for, for picking this movie. Yeah. Um, well, I was interested in um, I was interested in *Dune*, um, but that was re- reviewed last week, and then I looked mm. at you know what what's available on streaming services. So I saw *The Guilty* and uh, like you i was unaware of the danish film that it was based on but it it looked looked interesting and it has jake gyllenhaal and doing some research saying and a lot of reviewers were saying he used he gave a powerhouse performance so i'm like i really like jake gyllenhaal when he's going full you know full bore on something so mm-hmm. i was interested in this um i was a bit reluctant once i found out it was based on a danish film because mm-hmm. um, i've seen a lot of american remakes that have been inferior <laughs> I, I think there's a movie called the vanishing in uh, 1988 mm-hmm. um, like one of the scariest movies i've ever seen then they had the dutch director do an american version and it just was horrible (laughs) so Mm -hmm. I was hoping it wouldn't be the case for this film and and a lot of the negative reviews were like oh it's not quite as good as the original Mm -hmm. and 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 stuff like that but I was thinking you know I'm gonna give this a shot and I'm happy I did it um very powerful film and I think all the acclaim for uh, Jake Gyllenhaal is well-deserved he's really really going for it in this film and it's nice to see him you know, really sink his teeth into this role
1: mm-hmm.
0: it, it's part of an oeuvre of jake gyllenhaal films uh, where he's going crazy in la um so like nightcrawler is the one people think about a lot uh, which is a really really great movie if people haven't seen that uh nocturnal animals as well yes yeah that's and, a good one. Um, so and then he has another one coming up Next year, a Michael Bay movie called Ambulance, where he's uh, he and uh, Yahab Yahab Dool Mateen II are bank robbers who uh, take hostages in an ambulance. And uh, that trailer was, I think it was before Dune when I saw Dune, and it just looks like it looks like such a Michael Bay movie, yes. but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, you know, Jake Gillette you know. Uh, you know, screaming a lot. Yeah. That, shooting at room. helicopters. <laughs> shooting I don't, you know, hanging out,
2: hanging out to the side of vehicles. So yeah. that
0: that might be his like, like full transition to um, just, you know, crazy L.A. infamous outlaw. Anyway, it, it's he definitely seems to be. I was going to say he's having a moment, but this moment's gone on for like eight years. But <laughs> yeah. he, he, he definitely knows how to work this this kind of material. And Anton Fuqua is the director. And um, this is going to sound like a backhanded compliment, but it's kind of not. Uh, he's a really good director of dad movies. And by that, I mean, just like action oriented movies that you don't really have to think too much about, but have like really great casts. So things like. Uh, the Equalizer movies with uh, Denzel, uh, Shooter with Mark Wahlberg. Um, I couldn't remember it for the life of me. I had to actually look it up. But Olympus has fallen. The the first of those um, Gerard Butler movies um, where he's trying to save the president. Um, but Olympus has fallen. It's like the best one. It is also like. Uh, the best representation of the Die Hard in the White House aesthetic because there were two movies that came out in the same year that were Die Hard in the White House and Olympus was Olympus has fallen was probably the better of the two and so he's he's really really good at these kind of mid-budget actiony uh, movies that can you know hook you just enough that you're watching it, you're enjoying it uh, and then it's over and you go back about your business and uh <laughs> you don't really think about it again until the next time it comes on tv uh so and again that, that does sound like a backhanded problem but it, but it not a lot of filmmakers can work in that seat at that sweet spot and he does and this is sort of a little bit outside of his wheelhouse because um as as, as long as As well as being a dad movie, this is also very clearly a pandemic movie. It was shot during the pandemic because it's mostly one guy in a room. Mm -hmm. Um, But I mean, that is um, Anton Fuqua really stretching here because um, all the action is sort of implied. Um, All the action is left up to your imagination. Uh, If there is action in this movie, it is uh, watching jake gyllenhaal's police officer basically tried to control himself yeah and uh it, it's a case i think where you have a, a really good actor um really doing uh good work and uh you have a pretty solid voice cast as well uh ethan hawk uh, riley co uh peter skarsgård even bill burr and like a really <laughs> weird kind of funny cameo yeah. uh, so uh yeah it's just it's a solid solid movie and uh i don't yeah and
2: i, I think there's an, an intensity to it too yeah and um the director he also directed training day mm-hmm. um that's decades ago now i guess is when 20 years out. ago 20 years ago yeah. yeah and that's with denzel washington and ethan hawk and very intense portrayals in that film Um, Mm -hmm. and to me, this had some similarities to that and just like the intensity of Jake Gyllenhaal and him just wanting to, basically his character is an LAPD officer who's in trouble with the law for an incident that happened when he was on duty. So he's forced to, um, you know, take a night shift at, the 911 call center, Mm -hmm. um, to, uh, you know, to fill the time and he's just wants to control the situation so much. He's somebody who, who's like, always, you know, he always feels like he's, he's on the right side of justice and he's going to mm-hmm. do whatever it takes to, to, um, you know, to, to do the right thing in that moment. Like um, on the phone, when he, he finds out that it, it seems like, this woman's been abducted by her husband and left two kids at home and she's been abducted in this van. They're not sure where he's not sure where it's traveling to. He just, you know, breaks every rule, probably in the nine one one book <laughs> calling, calling his, you know, his, his sergeant calling his friend on the police force to, uh, to visit um, visit the home of the potential abductor to find clues.
1: Doing these. In.
2: Yeah, break in, break the door, <laughs> break the door down. Yeah, You know, he's just so like, this is this is the way we're going to solve the situation. I'm going to do anything I can. And really interesting character because he has deep anger issues. It's like nobody can even pretty much say hello to this guy without him snapping. Yeah. And it, it's really interesting to watch how self-destructive that is for him, too. Yeah, And like you said, it's a pandemic movie. So you're pretty much watching you know, a one man show mm. with Jake Gyllenhaal with these other characters on playing voice actors, um, basically. And, and they do a great job in that, but, you know, the focus so much on Jake Gyllenhaal and, um, I think the director does a great job on it. It reminds me, you know, some other movies we've like, this is seemed to be like strictly a pandemic movie. It was filmed in, uh, November, Last year, I believe, like in mm-hmm. right in the middle of the pandemic, mm-hmm. but it reminds me of some other movies that we've reviewed: um, Ma Rainey's Big Bottom, um, mm-hmm. you know, one I didn't review it, but One Night in Miami and mm-hmm. stuff. That's it's very. It could have been like a stage drama, but it's on the screen. And I think kudos to Antoine Fuqua, the director, too. Some of his camera angles are quite interesting, given that you're pretty much focused on one actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, in one location for most of it. Mm-hmm. And he does add, he does add some color with there's um, a few moments and maybe there could have been one or two more moments like this uh, where Jake Gyllenhaal's on the phone and he finds out, Oh, the, the police have spotted the van. Then you see like an out of focus, them approaching the van mm-hmm. and opening the doors of the van. Um, so, that adds a little intensity to it. Um, I thought maybe could have been maybe one or two more moments like that. Um, still would have worked in that still would have worked in that sort of pandemic feel. Um, and, and with the requirements, the COVID requirements, I'm sure, mm-hmm. um, could add it a little bit more, um, from a visual sense, but I just thought the intensity that he shows with Jake Gyllenhaal, like it, it's, um, just really really in your face and really affecting and you really it's like suspense in the best sense of the word because you're just wondering what's going to happen in the situation uh how how is this going to resolve itself and Mm. there's some twists too and i thought yeah i thought it was really really well handled one of the better movies i've seen that's like you know so minimal as far as set go i thought it was really well handled
0: yeah, I mean, I, I I have some nitpicks about that. I mean, my first one is just uh, I, I realized this was shot in the pandemic. So you probably don't want to have a lot of people crammed together on a set. But um, it's one of those things I thought about after the movie. It's like, you know, that kind of seemed like, a you know, for, for a major metropolitan 911 center uh, in the middle of the night while fires are burning, like literally on the hillside overlooking the city. Uh seemed to seem to be a little quiet there. <laughs> 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 you know, it wasn't like this, this bustling hub of activity, um, which you know just kind of stuck out uh to me. Uh I mean it, it's all about Jake Chillenhall. You either go along with it or you don't. Um I think there are some times where like he flips the desk, like maybe one too many times to show his <laughs> aggravation with the situation. But there are times when he's just like, um, like it shows you right off the beginning, he's like an asthmatic. And of course, you know, as we know, even here in Ontario. Um, Southern Ontario, where we're not even, where we're like hundreds of kilometers away from forest fires. We can still be affected by the smoke and the smog from forest fires and, mm-hmm. and, and feel that in our throats. And, and it shows him early in the movie, uh, an asthmatic, he's taking, um, some puffs off his inhaler. So, you know, there's this kind of like this physical aggravation. He, he, he gets overexcited and he starts coughing, and um, I mean, being an asthmatic myself, I, I sort of recognize the, the symptoms and, and recognize how, you know, sometimes uh, emotionality can can have that effect on your breathing and aggravate um, those symptoms. So like little details like that were really effective, that it, it's not like the mental toll of sort of everything that's going on also has a physical toll. And mm-hmm. he didn't, you know. Again, there that that there was that one scene near the end where he just clears the desk and it's just like, oh, <laughs> we get it. You're aggravated, <laughs> and it that's that's like a little that's like acting. That's like you go to acting school and the first time you do that, the teacher goes like, hmm, okay, I, I I feel your anger, but it's like maybe we don't have to. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I I I do. I I hate reviewing a movie by talking about all the things that the movie could have been but isn't. But at the same time, my impression is, and this is kind of the issue when you kind of get into translating a movie from one place to another, I do feel like this kind of straight adaptation, there was sort of a missed opportunity because, I mean, this was shot, as you said, last fall, which was after all the George Floyd stuff, after all the black lives matter stuff in the summer, last summer of, of 2020, I feel like there was kind of more to say because like the Gyllenhaal character is like the wrong kind of cop. He's like this man of action. I have to be in on the action. Um, This kind of like, I like this dirty hairy kind of like, I will do absolutely anything to get the bad guy. And that's kind of what that movement last summer was bristling against. Yeah. And I, I feel like there was kind of opportunity for some kind of commentary there. Now, I don't know what form that would look like, but I mean, that that's part of the, the issue with the very restrained kind of setting and style that, that this film calls for. It just, his backstory... I think, well, it has some bearing on the main story, but like that backstory is kind of like probably <laughs> the probably has a bigger role um, in the eyes of an American audience than it does in a for a Danish audience. And I think that there was probably I, I think that was probably lost in translation. I think there was so much focus on like doing kind of like the straight adaptation that you miss. You you kind of can't see the forest for the trees. And I mean, that's just a bit of like couch, you know, psychiatrist couch analysis on my part, but it, it just uh there's so much more going on uh from the North American perspective to this story than I think mo that would that would probably go past most Danish audiences.
2: If you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, that that could that could be. I think um yeah, that the question I sort of had too was they talked a lot about the forest fires, you know, what are the mm-hmm. obstacles here um, mm-hmm. for getting these 911 calls, getting dispatch to get somebody to come for these 911 calls and the forest fires were, seem to be the big thing. Mm-hmm. And like you said earlier, it was kind of interesting that it wasn't bristling with people in the, uh, you know, on the phones in the 911 center he had uh, one gentleman next to him who he would talk to every now and then. Poor Manny. Um, yeah, Manny. <laughs> and then uh, he just... Yeah, Jake Gyllenhaal just sort of had free reign of the place. He just goes into some office, and that's where he is the rest of the time on the phone. He goes in to an office, and he goes on a computer, logs yeah. in his computer. Nobody yeah. really says anything about it, which I found kind of odd. But then, like, going back to what you are saying, like, with the Black Lives Matter protests... You didn't really hear a lot about that. Um, I had to look back at what who Bill Burr's character was. And I'm like, oh, Bill Burr was in this. And then <laughs> he, he was the guy calling from the nightclub, and it sounded mm-hmm. like there was like a riot or something going on there. So mm-hmm. I'm like, is that alluding to Black Lives Matter? Uh, and then also, obviously, the backstory, like you're saying, for the uh, Jake Gyllenhaal character, you know, why he's in trouble with the law. Does that kind of yeah could they have delved more into that he said you know he he said he abused the lock as he could is basically what he says on the phone um but like what does that mean what were the circumstances mm-hmm. and you're right that probably means more in the U.S. with the Black Lives Matter movement than it might in Denmark um, so there there were some opportunities there and I do, I do agree with you that some of it some of it was a little paint by numbers. Like when he gets angry mm-hmm. and he just like, oh, I'm going to break this lamp or whatever he did. He's going <laughs> to, you know, just like I'm the Hulk here, He-Man or I'm just going get, to yeah. get angry and do that. Yeah,
0: he hulks that, out a couple of times. Yeah. He,
2: yeah, he hulks <laughs> out a couple <laughs> of times. <laughs> so that that was, uh, you know, a little bit cliched, but Overall, I, 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 overall, it 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 really, I was really involved, and I didn't really think too much about those elements. Mm. Um, and yeah, the Danish version, I'd, I'd love to see that, because um, one thing I read is it does go into the backstory with Jake Gyllenhaal more mm-hmm. in this one, and you can see his picture of his daughter on on the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's estranged from his wife, you know, because of what happened uh, that he's uh,
0: sort of in trouble for too. That's kind of very yeah. handily explained that his life is basically blown up. And yeah. it's the day before he's going t- into court to sort of answer for the charges. So that adds to the, I guess the, <laughs> the pressures, shall we say?
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, uh, it's interesting and then you know Ethan Hawk as his sergeant who he gets on the line by by accident he's like "Serge, is that you and he's like yeah I have to I have to be on the phones like three times yeah. a month as a rotation yeah and you know they're both they're both of that ilk like we'll do whatever it takes like you're saying that sort of dirty hairy mindset we'll do what it takes to
0: yeah they're both cowboy cops
2: yeah both cowboy cops we're both gonna do whatever it whatever it takes. So, uh, you, you do have that going on, but I think when you have a character like that, I think you just, I think it'd be tough to really give too much political or social commentary mm. to it, mm-hmm. but they already are in a sense. They already, like at the 911 dispatch, there's all these like screens showing the, forest fires and all the problems going on in the world like they, they could have touched on it more but uh, that didn't really that wasn't really a major fault for me of of, of the movie
1: no um,
0: i don't i don't think it's a major fault either it's just it's like nipping at the heels i mean you talk about the fire being a presence and like how the police are able to respond to the events going on in the story. Well, like all this like socio political stuff is kind of nipping at the heels yeah. of the screenplay and you can't really ignore it either.
2: <laughs> yeah. But I thought, uh... yeah, I'd like to see the Danish one too. Cause yeah. Cause what I read is you don't really find, you don't really get that inner, you don't really find out that much about the character, the lead protagonist. You don't really find out too much about what makes him tick, which in some cases can be even more gripping, you know? Hmm. Cause I felt, yeah, with the Jake Gyllenhaal character, he has, he's estranged from his wife since the incident and his daughter. And he wants to um, say goodnight to his daughter, call her late, like two in the morning to say yeah. goodnight. Uh, so you feel for him. You feel, you feel for his character, but at the same time, it's almost maybe it is a little too easy to have those sort of elements there to sort of say, oh, you
0: the- know what? I, I I see it a different way because I don't remember the film like opening with any kind of like mention of what time it is like you see it's night. But I mean, depending on what time of year it is, night starts at like five o'clock. So what I liked about that scene where he calls his wife to like, I just want to say goodnight to the, our daughter and just like, well, it's two o'clock in the morning. She has been asleep for five hours. <laughs> it, 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 it's, you know, it, it speaks to, I like, I think it speaks to like how you kind of lose time in sort of these windowless places, um, how you kind of live in this kind of purgatory where you don't, unless you look at your watch, you don't know what time it is. Um it also speaks to, like his kind of carelessness. It's like, well, it's my daughter. I'll call anytime I want. Do whatever I want. So it was kind of a nice um kind of uh, character reference that you know he just calls his ex-wife at two o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I want to say goodnight to our daughter. Well, it's two o'clock in the morning, so <laughs> <laughs> what, what were you expecting?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it humanizes them. So yeah. I can't talk about the Danish. I just like read a little bit about it, maybe that character's more, you know, inhuman in a way. And then you're like, mm. well, what is real true cowboy cop and doesn't have, you don't really feel any empathy for him. So Jake Joan Hall's bringing that to the table too, trying to, trying to make us feel some empathy for the character. And you do, you know, mm. and then mm. at the end, I thought you definitely feel empathy for him. He has a guilty conscience the whole time, right? um mm-hmm. and he's coming to terms with it and through this you know sort of terrifying you know terrifying situation he's on the fo- uh, he's on the phone for this uh abduction he's kind of come to terms with you know what he's going through and how he has to tell the truth and mm-hmm. i i thought i thought that was um a really good good character arc and the course of the film Mm -hmm. um but yeah there is a lot of pounding on the table a lot of hulk mannerisms (laughs) and stuff like that but it's a little pat but in the end
0: his sergeant comes in and she says you know broken people can save other broken people and i'm like okay way to make the subtext text but leaving that (laughs) aside um i i think i think there's like enough truth in that um, that he yeah he's probably a bad cop, but he's not necessarily a bad man. Um, and a lot of like, but what, what the story is essentially about, without spoiling anything, is like he has certain preconceived notions when he gets this woman's call at the nine one one center that forces him to go into hero cop mode. There are bad guys. There are good guys. I have to save the damsel in distress. Uh, I have to save the kids. I have to get this scumbag. There's a lot of like that kind of talk. And then there's a moment in the film where, as you said, there's a twist where he realizes all of that is wrong. And Mm -hmm. he has to, he has to basically resolve the situation by doing none of the things He thinks being a cop is and relating to someone on a pure human level. um, You know, yeah, he's wearing a badge. He's, He's a cop, but I mean, this is kind of like a situation where he's not talking to the perpetrator as a cop. He's talking as like one human being to another. So there's something juicy and... And and pointed about the, the way this is all handled You can we can quibble a bit About how we you know kind of Get there in the end and what all the things that were said And maybe what should have been said But I think that Message is still essentially solid It's like ev- all the instincts He brought into the Job with him As a cop in this situation Were wrong And it's about how he kind of has to deal with that over the course of this very tight 90
2: minutes very tight 90 minutes i have to say for sh- yeah for sure it was really tight and yeah he's like a bull in a china shop yeah yeah and <laughs> the fact that he's in you know on the phones you know and 911 uh 9 dispatch there that you know that's out of his because he's used to being the cowboy so it's something yeah. you know cinema's worked through for years is like how do you go from you know being out there like westerns used to be out there on the horse and now you have to live in civilization and he's going from being out there being a cowboy cop out on the streets to having to you know go through procedures in this office environment mm-hmm. and that's when he gets the most frustrated is uh, oh i have to, they can't do anything unless they have a license plate number
1: mm-hmm. and
2: he he cowboys up and does his own thing. And he's like, I'm going to start researching where these people live. And I'm going to get my own people on this to break down doors. Um, but, uh... Oh, go ahead. Adam.
0: I was just going to say, he, he's like literally screaming orders at like the, the other dispatchers, like the, the California highway patrols, like just stop every van. And she's like, uh, we obviously can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know it, it's it's you know it, it it's he's trying to he he's just going with his in at the beginning of this he's just kind of going with his instincts like what he would do if he were out on the street trying to solve this and perhaps not realizing that it's not a procedure and b um you know he's not in charge and it's I'm gonna maybe I'll take this back. Maybe this is a bit more subtle than I will give it credit for because you know he is you know the hero cop with like a very specific understanding of what that means, and perhaps the other cops are. um, I was gonna say a bit more. um, Well, not. I can't remember what I was gonna say, but I mean, it's it's just like they're following procedure. They're like, you know, we can't bureaucratic kind of, right? Well, they're technocratic, right? It's like, you know, get us a if you get us a license plate, we will be able to stop the right van, but we're obviously not going to stop every van, Um, and 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 that is what he does. Like he essentially does the work and puts the pieces together and is able to get like a a license plate number Um, once he's able to calm down and and like instead of just being like purely reactionary he's able to do the job and get the right people the information that they need
2: (laughs) yeah and i um the highway patrol dispatcher was divine joy randolph Mm -hmm. who played lady reed in dolomite is my name so and she was good
0: she was was another good voice actor in this yeah
2: she's very she's just matter of fact and you get that and Anybody that's been on the phone for anything gets that. You can understand the frustration. <laughs> you call Rogers, and it's like we're going to need to know this, and it's like why don't did, you just help me? Yeah, and, yeah. You know that's what he's he's getting, but she's she's following procedure, and you can see what happens if you don't follow procedure, like what he's doing. You know, P- people start getting hit with bricks and stuff. You know, but um, when based on what Jake Gyllenhaal is telling people to do, but. Um, yeah, she's just sort of like, uh, we're gonna need a license plate number, and yeah. it's like, how do you like you're saying, <laughs> you know, why don't you just stop every white van in Los Angeles, you know? Yeah, uh, we we can't do that, sir. Um, yeah, and I thought I thought it was really really funny too. Like, um, there was I think one of the first callers, and it turned out it was Paul Dano. Yeah, yeah, plays uh, <laughs> Matthew who's in town on business. And he gets robbed by a prostitute, has his like, laptop laptop stolen or something. And he calls in and he's like, I know, th- forget it. I forget what he says. I know the governor or something. I know this. I know these people. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, and then there's some other comic relief later on when Jake Joan is just in the throes of the situation trying to help this abducted woman and somebody calls in because they fell off their bike yeah and he, he says, <laughs> <laughs> and he says call an uber and hangs up on him. <laughs> call an uber and don't don't cycle drunk
0: <laughs> but i mean it's 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 funny but i mean that's i mean that's kind of a situation where you're probably going to get into trouble at some point it's like well you had this guy who called in and was trying to report he was being robbed and you're kind of jerking him around you know the quality control people at the LAPD emergencies line are probably going to be listening to some of this tape and uh be probably grateful he's not on the police force anymore
2: yeah he's gonna have some bad performance reviews that night uh yeah I mean it's, it's the
0: voiceover at the end uh was someone like the radio reports implied that he's probably not going to have a good next couple of years period but uh, uh, yeah that the, the performance reviews are probably the least of his concerns but <laughs> anyway just just a thought <laughs> at, at the end of the movie it's like you know some of these calls did not go by actually all of these calls did not go by the book but
2: <laughs> well that's what was missing Adam they should have had that performance review scene um... <laughs> just that <laughs>
0: Yeah, they should have had like the old dragnet thing, where it's like, officer, what was his name? Officer Joe Baylor uh, was found guilty of uh, shooting an unarmed person, but he was also received the the worst performance review of any LAPD emergency <laughs> caller in history. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> would have been a little. That's that's probably not uh, as as meta as Antoine Fuqua is capable of getting, but we will leave that there.
2: That'll be for our remake. Um, <laughs> a remake the, of the remake
0: the canadian remake of the, <laughs> the guilty um okay uh tim if people want to get in touch with you and talk about police procedure or whatever how can people find you on the internet
2: yeah i'd be interested to learn people's takes on that um <laughs> flashing the deadpan on social media
0: and that is it for this week's show. We hope you liked it. And if you want to listen to it again, you can download it from our website at com. You can get it through the Guelph Politicast channel every Friday at Podbean or through your favorite podcast app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, and Spotify. And while you're on Spotify, you can get the playlist for much of the music that you hear on End Credits. Just open up Spotify and search for End Credits on CFRU. You can find us on social media on Facebook at End Credits Radio Show and on Twitter at End Credits Radio. I will be back here on CFRU tomorrow at 5 p.m. for News and Politics on Open Source's Guelph with Scotty Hertz. In the meantime, I am on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson, and you can check out my News and Politics site at GuelphPolitico.ca. And stay tuned for more great programming here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus, and Community Radio we will be back for more and credits next Wednesday at 3 p.m. and we will see you then.